Okay, so what do you eat for breakfast most days? I don't eat breakfast. I drink a decaf Americano. What's your favorite go-to snack? Bacon. What's your favorite takeout food? Thai. Pineapple fried rice with chicken, maximum spice level. What's your top three pantry ingredients? Top three pantry ingredients. Number one would be cassava flour. Number two would be the seven Instapots to make anything I want. And number three would be Sir Kensington's avocado oil mayonnaise that I eat straight out of the jar. Any kitchen gadgets you just can't live without? Instant pot, instant pot, instant pot, and a chef's knife. Hey, Jade. Hey, Tedra. So today we're chatting with George Bryant. He is the man behind Civilized Caveman, which is a hugely successful paleo blog. He is a co-author of a wildly popular series of cookbooks, including the New York Times bestseller, The Paleo Kitchen. In addition to these things, he travels the world as a marketing consultant, sharing techniques on how to ethically scale a growing business. George, man, what do you say about George? He's unlike any guest we featured. I mean, yes, he's a well-known paleo guru, but his personal story that he shares at the beginning of the episode, it seems unbelievable at first until you realize it's 100% real and authentic. So George's story includes abuse, trauma, loss, and so many challenges. He has an ongoing struggle living with the aftermath of his past while building techniques and structure to live a full productive life right now. George is kind of an intense guy, but in all the right ways. You can't enter a conversation with him and walk away unaffected. He gives so much to think about and the inspiration to get busy making positive changes in your own life right now. So one more thing before we get started. Due to the nature of George's story, we do want to let parents know that there is some hard, mature content discussed in this episode, and it's not suitable for little ears. You're listening to the We Get to Know podcast, and for years, we've all been following some of the most inspiring bloggers and social media influencers. Simply put, we get inspired. The next best thing to following our favorite influencers is hearing their stories straight from them. So listen in as we get to know George. Okay, George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No problem. I've got so much to talk to you about. I just want to start by reading a little bit of your post, the 26 things you probably don't know about me. So I know a lot of your story is already out there and people can go to your blog and listen to podcasts, but I want to get a brief rundown of everything you've been through and who you are today, how it's brought you to who you are today. But I'm just going to start with this. So you guys, you're, some of the 26 things you don't know about this guy. You've endured sexual abuse. You had a super rough childhood. You joined the U.S. Marines and you were active duty for 12 years. You suffer from PTSD. You have a ton of buddies who have committed suicide. You endured an eating disorder, bulimia, for 12 years. Your dad died of cancer when you were young. I could just go on and on. You've tied world record for highest box jump. You were honor graduate many times. I mean, you've got so much to unpack. Let's just get into it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I've learned my lesson to precursor these just for everybody listening. Everything I say is true. And it may seem a little weird, but I literally say everything because it's my therapy. So I do this all the time. So I'm just prepping you that I might cry. You might cry. But (laughs) no matter what, I love everybody. And I say this so everybody else has permission to own their story. So their story can't own them. That's right. So tell us where are you from and just kind of broad strokes about your childhood. Originally um, from a little town in Massachusetts called Norfolk, Massachusetts. It's Norfolk, but it's spelled Norfolk, right outside of Foxborough. I lived in Connecticut for a while, lived in Massachusetts. My story is kind of interesting. My parents were drug addicts, alcoholics, very abusive emotionally and physically. 
And my earliest memory of life is actually being abused. So I not only have PTSD from the military, I have PTSD from my child that I basically grew up in trauma and I've had to teach myself just even understanding what empathy and compassion are because when you live in a space of survival, not always the best thing. So childhood was pretty, pretty rough. I actually lived in West Hartford, Connecticut for a while. I was the only white kid in my class for three years in a row. Both my front teeth were knocked out three times by the time I hit seventh grade. My nose was broken from a bully the first time in eighth grade. Social services came in and basically took us away from our parents. And I tried to get emancipated at like 14. My dad almost died in a DUI. My parents started getting divorced. I started being bulimic at 14, in and out of a psych ward, was bullied again, broke my nose again when I was like 16. My parents did drugs, alcohol, and I did none of it. Honestly, it scared me. So I basically lived in friends' basements, lived in cars, and lived in my nurse's office and basically didn't go to school. But luckily, my teachers believed in me enough to pass me, even though I did not deserve it. So when I was 17, I forged my parents' signature to join the Marine Corps because that's the easiest way to punish yourself when you come from a broken space is try to find the hardest thing you can do to overcome your Napoleon complex. So I went to boot camp July 20. 9th of 2002, right after I graduated. And I ended up being the honor graduate at boot camp. Graduated first out of 1,500 people, went to Marine combat training. Graduated first out of oh like gosh, 600 people. <laughs> yeah. Went to Marine combat training, graduated first out of like 800 people, went to my job school for four months, graduated first out of that class and was able to pick my duty station. And I picked my way straight to North Carolina. And within a couple months, I was on a plane to Somalia for 13 months of my life. All while still struggling with bulimia, except this time I'd lost all my fat weight from high school. If you guys want to read more, there's a post on my website called Dear Bulimia, You Fought Hard But I Won. It's a little bit because we don't have an entire episode to dedicate just to eating disorders. And so ended up in the Marine Corps being bulimic my entire career, using it as a way to manipulate, control, and punish myself due to like trauma I'd felt as a child, not being good enough, all that stuff. And so May 2004, I went to Somalia. Well in Somalia, my 21st birthday, December 27, 2004, I almost lost both my legs. I ended up getting exercise-induced compartment syndrome, ended up having six Wait, surgeries. What's that? Don't Google it if you just ate. First, let me just preface that right now. If I say these names and you Google them, I'm giving you the warning right now. So exercise-induced compartment syndrome is basically when you have four compartments in your calf. You have an anterior, a posterior, and two overflows. You also have compartments in your quad, your forearm, and your bicep. And so car accidents will get compartment syndrome, soccer players, massive blunt force trauma. But basically what happens is the blood hits a point or there's something that happens that stops it from continuing to flow, but your heart keeps pumping it to the point where your skin will expand and stretch and rip open. And you'll basically your legs, in my case, my leg would explode. And I'm not going to dive into that story either, but the surgery that they do is called a fasciotomy. So they did a bilateral fasciotomy on me, which is where they fillet you from knee to ankle on both sides of both legs and leave it open for about three weeks on each side. Oh my word. Did they fly you back stateside for that? Yeah, about six months later, they misdiagnosed me at first. So I got really lucky because I had shot claws, but they never passed my legs. So I'm lucky to be alive. And when they put me on the OR and the operating table, they told me they're going to amputate both my legs and that I would never walk again. And I'm not going to swear on your show, but I said something that began with F and ended with U. And I ended up in a wheelchair for 12 months. My bulimia spun out of control. I gained 100 pounds, ended up at 260, addicted to narcotics spiraling out of control of my bulimia. I remember I would eat three large pepperoni pizzas with a bottle of ranch dressing. And then I would spend six hours puking it up until there was nothing left. And then I would take 10 to 15 pain pills at a time. 
And I was in literally a barracks room by myself for like nine months doing this. And so it was a pretty, pretty dark time. Let me just stop for one second. I want to go back. You said you started the eating disorder as a child, right? Yeah. Was that... Oh, I did miss a part. Of course I did. Because I'm trying to tell the elevator version and I'm not going linearly. I was um, molested when I was nine and I was raped when I was 13. I was molested by family friends, babysitters when I was nine, all women actually. And then when I was 13, I was tied up and beaten by two women who were 18 who literally raped me and beat me and tied me up and left me there when they were done. Yeah, so my eating disorder started right around that time, like 13, 14, where the shame never went away and I hated women and my mother was a drunk and drugged up and exacerbated that problem and I was picked on in school and I was quite frankly ugly with braces, bowl cut. My parents were drug addicts and everybody knew I smelled like smoke and dirtiness. So everything really spiraled from an eating, I mean, just internally, your mental status, all of it up into wheelchair time. Oh yeah, wheelchair time was like almost like you thought it was bad, but let's see how bad it can actually oh, get. Excruciating. Yeah. But honestly, not excruciating. Best thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. It wouldn't change my life in an instant because it is what's given me the tools to do what I do in this world. And it's definitely a positive. So I wasn't tested to be tested. I was tested to be capable of standing for humanity. And that's what I believe to be true. So that's incredible what you just said. I actually I was preparing for this interview and I wrote down a quote from a book I recently read that was in the back of my brain. I feel like it applies so much to you. Personal fulfillment is fullest when we're involved in something bigger than ourselves, something for the good of others. And that suffering in our lives is what produces the greatest results if we let them. That's the biggest tool for others. I mean, the, your suffering can be the greatest gift, the result of your suffering. Yeah, and the only difference between suffering and pressure is that you're prepared and it turns into pressure. Oh, that's, so I've never even heard that quote. That's really true. For the rest of my life. And I'm also prepared for anything, anybody, anybody that comes in my space. And, and quite frankly, the reason I love my story is it takes all of your ammunition away from you to hate yourself. Because I've been there, I get it, and you can't use it with me. You've been through like all of it. <laughs> All the stuff, it feels like. I mean, it wasn't easy. It's not roses and rain petals. I literally left therapy three hours ago with three hours of my wife and there were tears, vomiting, upset. Like, it's not like everything's here. And like, I'm, I'm here to deconstruct the perfect life, which is why I use my social media so openly. I feel like it's unethical and immoral to present a picture or a rehearsed truth on what life is without showing people what it's really like and actually empowering them to do the work on their own and preparing for the fact that this is just what life means, but we can still all together rise above it. Mm, I totally agree. It's powerful. And so like, that's kind of the position I took because it spiraled out of control 2005, right? In the wheelchair. And then basically the Marine Corps said, we're going to kick you out. And I was more afraid to go home than I was to stay in. And so very stubbornly, I broke all the doctor's rules and I... Went to physical therapy, taught myself how to walk again, even though I can't feel my legs from the knee down, and ended up being able to run a full physical fitness test. Went on to run a marathon, went on to do an Ironman, and then went what? on to deploy. <laughs> you run a marathon yeah. and an Ironman? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then in that time, I got married and divorced, but that's not even part of the story. Right. It was such an 11-month thing that wasn't even really a good idea. And then in 2008, my dad got diagnosed with metastatic brain and lung cancer. And so I spent six months taking care of him after we healed from our past. And there's a lot of deeper stories here, but we literally don't have the day to go into the epiphany of my 40 hours of talking through my life story. 
So you're in the wheelchair. Would you say like that year of being in the wheelchair and healing and then the Marine threatening, the Marines threatening to kick you out, was this the catalyst? You know what? Someone asked me that the other day. Actually, Simon, one of Simon Sinek's people I was with, they asked me that. And I said, I think everybody looks for that one big catalyst. And quite frankly, there never is one. I had a series of small ones that eventually eroded away the comfort zone so much that at the end of it, it hurt bad enough that I had nothing left that I could do. But it wasn't one because it was in a wheelchair about to lose my legs. Then it was married and divorced. Then it was losing my dad. Then it was watching three friends commit suicide. Then it was losing 21 Marines. Then it was you know, getting medically separated when my entire life was going to be in the Marine Corps. Like there were so many different things, but none of them ever, ever became the one catalyst. I felt like each one got me. I'd reached this visually, like imagine this. So, you know, human beings fear change, you know, more than anything. And we crave comfort. And when we look at this world of our life, we look at everything like we're going to basically summit the mountain. And once we hit the top of the mountain, we get there. But the truth is, is that once you hit the top of the first peak, you can now see the next peak, but you can't jump over to it. You actually have to crash and die to climb up again. And that's why we fear change. And so what each one of these things were is like I hit peak one and I made it. And, like, oh, and then something happened that basically metaphorically and quite frankly felt like killed me. And I ended up back down in the ditch, but the ditch was higher than the first one. And then I got to climb again until I hit the next peak. And then now I've gotten to the point where I just accept that life and energy is about ebbs and flows and circumstances are going to happen no matter what. And life is going to happen no matter what. And it's our opportunity to see how we relate to those things in our life, whether it's responsible or victim, whether we see it as bad or good, it doesn't really matter because commitment isn't feelings. And if you're committed to your why, with a big enough purpose, then regardless of how you feel, you're going to show up and do the work anyways. And since I refuse to ever take my own life, I have two options. I either suffer while I do nothing, or I basically feel the pressure because I'm prepared and I do everything. And that's kind of like the path that I take. Well, and it's such a real... That, first of all, that was an amazing word picture. <laughs> and also, it's such an honest representation. I think it's more authentic representation of growth than this idea that we like to imagine or romanticize that, oh, things are so terrible and they got worse and then this thing happened and everything turned around from that moment and it's been so amazing since. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. You're responsible, right? Because like, what is our job? Our job is not to give people tools. It's not to give them the fish, it's to teach them how to fish. But if we give it to them, they never learn what is required to do the work and to change and it becomes a temporary, which actually exacerbates their cycle and most of the time makes it worse because when they fall, they fall harder because of frustration, fault, blame, and guilt and shame. Our job and this is what I teach in marketing when I work with these companies, there's three things that people need in their life to change. They need permission, they need safety, and they need accountability. We give people permission by owning our story because they can self-identify with what we're feeling. And when we speak about our life and they self-identify, they become open. And then when we share the resiliency or the authentic understanding of our story, whether it's pain, grief, happiness, or whatnot, they start to feel safe because they understand that if they speak it into existence and they own their truth, that it can't own them. And then the accountability comes once they self-identified and they made the decision, then they know that we are the lighthouse in the dark that they can always come back to, but as they do their work, not we do it for them. 
that's like my job. That's how I show up because that's what's underneath everything. Like nobody needs another freaking brownie <laughs> recipe. <laughs> you're not searching for another brownie recipe. You're searching for another answer that you've refused to accept that is sitting inside of you that you just have to own. Oh my gosh, you just said a world of truth right there. <laughs> Okay, guys, we're going to pause for a minute to tell you about one of our partners. We talk a lot about health and nutrition on this podcast. One thing that goes hand-in-hand with our health is supplemental care. We've partnered with Dr. C Vitamins to offer you a 20% discount off their premium pharmaceutical-grade and medically-endorsed line of supplements. All vitamins are not created equal. In fact, there's no FDA oversight for supplements. Unlike over-the-counter vitamins, Dr. C supplements are manufactured without commonly found synthetic ingredients. I mean, honestly, who wants synthetics going into our bodies? They're also non-GMO and gluten-free. Their standards are so high, these vitamins are actually manufactured just like a prescription drug would be in an FDA-registered facility. Most vitamins do not subject themselves to this level of oversight. These supplements are made with the purest ingredients and tested for potency and purity. So I guess what we're trying to say is that with Dr. C supplements, your mind can rest at ease that you've chosen the best. I personally take their D3K2 combo to support bone health, memory, mood, and immune support, and their collagen biotin that supports strong hair, nails, and skin. And then on nights when I'm having a harder time falling asleep, I take the melatonin B6 combo, which helps me gently and naturally fall into a deep sleep. So give them a try. Go to drccares.com, use our code WEGETTONOW to save 20% on your order. And now enjoy the rest of the interview. So 2005, I basically got out of the wheelchair, ended up making a full recovery minus the feeling in my legs from the knee down, which I still can't feel, which is why I was medically separated, you know, eight years later and got married, got divorced. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. That was hard. That was definitely a massive catalyst for me from like being going from abused child to parent. So you had to take care of him? Oh yeah, totally. Six months, six months. He was paralyzed from the neck down. How did you feel about that? I mean, did you want to do it? Yeah, my father and I had a lot of healing when I was about 19. My parents' divorce ended up being finalized after six years. They both charged each other with like 50 to 60 criminal counts, basically ruined everything, everyone's life. And my father ended up getting custody of my brother and getting the house. And I didn't talk to my mother for 15 years, actually. And so my father and I had healing to where we were friends, not dad's son. We were just friends. Because, I mean, my father was an amazing man, but my father was broken. My father had four different fathers by the time he was 16. He saw his brother die when he was 17. He went to Vietnam and was medically separated after some of the stuff that he saw. And he did the best that he could with the tools that he had. And I understand that. And so we were friends and we were actually really, really close. I talked to him every day. And so it was heartbreaking and devastating on me when he was diagnosed with cancer. And so I went on a humanitarian transfer and spent six months taking care of him everything from paralyzed from the neck down to getting feeling back to then them amputating his left leg to learning for him to walk on a prosthesis, for him to being addicted to heroin and coke again, to kind of everything while my brother was 16 and I was trying to teach him how to get a job and be responsible. And I sold every possession I'd ever had, everything I'd worked for, my truck, I sold my boat, I sold my motorcycle, I sold. I ended up with an air mattress on the floor because everything else I did went towards taking care of my father. I took care of him for six months. They flew me back to Hawaii. I went back to work. And then my father had a stroke on December 5th of 2008. And I was his proxy. So I had to pull him off life support on December 6th. That story is another podcast in itself. And then I basically adopted my brother. 
had to clean out his house. It was my grandmother's house that he hadn't paid for. I had to find all the drugs, the blood on the walls, the blood on the carpets, the needles, and clean it all out, empty it out, handle his funeral, move my brother back to Hawaii with me and start over. How much younger was your brother? He's five and a half years younger. Okay. He now works for me full time and lives in my house, so it's perfect. Oh, wow. He's amazing. And so moved back to Hawaii, and then shortly after getting to Hawaii, they cut me orders to Camp Pendleton, California. So then we moved again, and then within three months of being here, they're like, hey, you're going back to Afghanistan. And so then my brother kind of had to fend on his own in my house, and I went back to Afghanistan. And then Afghanistan was the deployment that kind of did me in and also saved my life at the same time. So I ended up having seven concussions in three years, so traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder in my legs. Like You can see how I was like a walking nightmare at this point. Bill bulimic, purging in porta-potties in the middle of Afghanistan well, I was being a competitive crossfitter. Oh my word. Are you kidding me right now? This is like mind-blowing. 175 pounds, an eight-pack, 7% body fat, ran a five-minute mile, deadlifted 550 pounds, squatted 500 plus. What were you thinking about? Like, did you think the bulimia was a problem or whatever? It's just how I'm functioning. I knew it was a massive problem, but I used my fitness to hide. And I knew that if I won every race and I was the strongest in the room and I could do more pull-ups than anybody and I could win every competition that not one person would ever even question the fact that I had an eating disorder. And so I did. I ended up falling upon paleo. Like I found Rob Wolf's book when I was in Afghanistan, who now is a friend and it's amazing how Love full that circle book. things yep. go. Changed my life too. It was him and Tim's book that got me into it. And then it was one of the catalysts that started triggering me to change my bulimia because I started following Tim's diet, the four-hour body and in that diet, you basically eat like low carb, but then once a week, you have a massive binge meal. And I've learned something about myself. I've learned that not many people in life challenge me from an energetic or intensity standpoint. And I had remembered that there were some things in my life where if somebody met me with equal or higher energy, it, it kind of created awareness or made me surrender. And so I already was a binge eater because I was bulimic. Those weekends weren't a big deal for me, right? Like I was like, oh yeah, this is like my, my thing. So I decided to punish myself with binge eating. And so for the first four weeks, I said, I'm going to binge so bad that it breaks me. And I literally binged so bad that I would be crying and still eating and crying and still eating to the point where I learned how to basically purge without even putting my finger down my throat. And I mean, I was a really good bulimic. It was good. It's not funny. I'm sorry. It is funny. It should be because it's my story. And I want people to know that there's no shame in talking openly about it. And I say that for a reason because there's way too much of a stigma around eating disorders for women and especially men because it's so desensitized and unreported that we should own our truth and own our stories. And whatever way you get it out of your mouth is the best way. There's just something powerful about speaking it, like just getting it out there. Yeah. I tell everybody the easiest way to create a difference in your life is to speak your thoughts into existence because it neutralizes their power. Hence why you see me do Instagram stories and live videos about every single feeling from I'm depressed today to I'm struggling today to I had an amazing day because I refuse to give negativity the space to exist in my brain. And so I basically made it to the point where I made it hurt so bad that I never wanted to binge again like ever, it hurt that bad. And so I basically fought my own fire with my own fire. And it kind of broke something open in me. And I was like, all right, this paleo thing is like, 
can work. Like I feel good. I have a ton of energy. It's really easy not to get into like binging and purging. And now I'm like, at this point, I'm like, I never want to binge again. And so that eliminated a lot of the ammunition I had that I used to use against myself, the fault, the blame, the guilt, the shame. Look, you did it again. You lost control. You ate so much. I didn't want to binge anymore. And when I didn't want to binge anymore, I didn't really have anything to purge. So it started like, I literally started taking the ammunition out of my own gun because I couldn't do it on my own. So I just set my life up in a container that took it out itself. And if I had nothing to shoot, I couldn't shoot it. So then I just kept going. And I was like, all right, really into CrossFit, really into fitness. And I was like, I can use this. So when I get home, I'm going to teach myself how to cook. Like that's how I'm going to do this. And so I got home and I was like, I'm going to teach myself how to cook. I picked three recipes I found on the internet. And I was like, I'm going to make each one of them every single day until I can make them all and have them memorized. And then once I had them memorized, I'm like, I'm going to make them more. And then I'm going to start swapping ingredients. Like I'll change, you know, the amount of salt or I'll add garlic or I'll swap a vegetable for a vegetable. And that's literally how I taught myself how to cook. And I just said I needed accountability to keep beating my bulimia without anybody knowing. So I'll post it on a Facebook page. And that's when Civilized Caveman Cooking Creations was born in 2010. So it started with Facebook. Yeah, I didn't even have a blog. I didn't know what a blog was. (laughs) I know. I ask a lot of people we interview like, how did you start? Like, how did you even know how to build a blog? Did you know what a blog was? Like, did you look at blogs? I mean, no. So I posted on Facebook pages for my accountability and then people started finding it. And they're like, oh, that's amazing. But it's so hard to read these because I was using the notes section on the page. <laughs> and they're like, you should launch a blog. I'm like, what the hell is a blog? And they're like, oh, you just go to like blogger.com. And so I did. And I taught myself web design. I taught myself how to cook. I taught myself food photography. And then you know, the Marine Corps said, hey, we're kicking you out. It's been 12 years and we're medically separating you and no retirement, no pension, nothing. So my whole goal of doing 20 years and handing out smiley face stickers at Walmart was basically taken away from me. I didn't know what to do. And at the time I was like, I got to figure this out, just like everything in my life. And so I was like, I bet you I can make this food blog thing work. And I've never owned a business in my life. I've never taken a business class. I've never gone to college. I barely made it through high school. I don't read. I don't listen to podcasts, nothing. And I was like, I'm just going to figure it out. And because I'm not learning from anybody else, there's no container that somebody else is going to put me in. I'm just going to make this work. And I did. And I put together an ebook in 2010 before that was even a thing. And I made my annual salary the first day. And I was like, okay, I'm out. Kick me out. I'm done. Like, let's go. They got out. And then I basically made Civilized Caveman my my life where I blogged every single day for my accountability. So everyone wonders why I blogged every day for five years. I blogged every day because it was me holding myself accountable to not be bulimic. So all this time, the good decisions on top of good decisions and seeing the good results, I mean, it's just solidifying the paleo diet, the healing, all of it. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a proponent for paleo whole 30 or anything. I feel like they're all just gateways and I can't stand dogma scene. I almost just dropped an (laughs) F-bomb on you. But like, Well, okay. I was active duty as well in the Air Force for 12 years and my husband's still active duty. And so thank you for your service. I got to get that out there. Well, I just have to tell you that I'm jealous because you made a smart decision. (laughs) I know. We have the easy. We certainly don't get blown up like you guys. (laughs) It's okay. It all happened for a reason. So then taught myself how to cook. I was separated. I'm like, this blog's going to be a thing. And so I just kept being consistent and got into the paleo and then eventually broke open that I wanted to talk about my bulimic because I beat it. So I went on, you know, the number one health podcast in the world to tell the entire world I was bulimic at the same time, because that's how you show up in this world. Like if you want to grow, be a heat seeking missile for what you fear most. And so I did. And I run towards it. I get as uncomfortable as possible. And then that led to hey, you should do a book. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Was that the Abel James podcast? Yeah, the Abel podcast. 
Abel's and um, Stephanie Rupert's from Paleo for Women. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Stephanie's was actually first. And so then it started evolving and everyone's like, oh, you should do a cookbook. And everyone's like, it's so hard to get a publisher. I'm like, you guys make it complicated. I'm just going to call <laughs> one. And I literally <laughs> called the publisher. I'm like, I'm writing a book and you're publishing it. And they're like, uh, no way. Really? This is what happened? Yeah. And they're like, have you ever written a book before? I'm like, nope. And they're like, who's going to do the photos? I'm like, me. They're like, are you a photographer? I'm like, not yet. <laughs> and that was it. And I don't talk about my co-author because we have quite a negative history and don't talk about each other. So I'm not going to. But I basically taught myself photography, took 18,000 photographs in that book, edited them all myself, won awards for the photography, never did marketing, taught myself marketing, a marketing plan, launched the book and ended up being a 22 New York Times bestseller hit number four in the world. And, and the then, book's awesome for the listeners. Like this is, if you're thinking paleo or you already are paleo or who cares if you're paleo, actually, it's just a cookbook full of awesome recipes. Yeah, it's called The Paleo Kitchen. It's pretty good. Page 75 and 169 and page 95. Page 95 is the pancakes on the cover. Page 169 is the four layer bacon and beef casserole. And so basically did that and then that worked. And then someone's like, you should do an app. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to do an app, but I'll teach myself. So I figured out how to make an app, launched an app, and hit number one in the world. Got featured by Apple, the top health app of 2015. Okay, and tell everybody the name of the app. The app is called Caveman Feast. Okay, and this is, I was looking at that actually. I'm tempted to get it myself. So this is like filled with over 250 recipes and... Shopping list, integrated health, all of it. Seems pretty cool. So then that was there and then... Kept the paleo thing going and then in the midst of it, met my amazing wife, got there and had to come out to the world that I was still lying and I was being an incongruent blogger because nobody knew why I was bulimic. And so then I decided I was going to go to Paleo FX one last time and give a keynote and it would be the last time I ever went and I was going to stand on stage and open it and tell everybody that I was sexually abused. So I did that, which was amazing. And then focused on my family, got married. And then a couple years ago, I realized I hate cooking. <laughs> Stop it. Stop. Seriously? It's really hard to be a New York Times bestselling cookbook author and a food blogger when you hate cooking. So I went through a period of like really bad PTSD. My PTSD got really bad depression. I actually was back in the psychiatric ward like three years ago. My wife and I got married. She got pregnant. And I basically got to a couple weeks away from bankruptcy because I was resisting and resenting the blog and cooking so much. And here's what happened. The blog was a tool for me. It was a tool for me to beat something that I wanted to do myself with bulimia, come out to the world about sexual abuse. But once it came this business and what I had to do every day, it became a martyr and hard for me to focus on. It was actually reverting me back because then I had new stressors involved that didn't really make sense. And and the meaning behind it had already been accomplished. Yeah, and I quite frankly realized that nobody needs new damn recipes. They need someone to stand for them. And so I started using food as a gateway drug to get to people's souls. And I'm like, you can tell me that you want a new meal plan and a new diet and a new fitness routine and a new recipe, but what you're not telling me is that you don't love yourself, you don't believe in yourself, and you don't think you're capable. So I'm going to rip that off and we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to help you change your life, not give you a new recipe. And so it started pulling me in this different direction to where like, I need to use my voice, I need to speak, I need to teach people like my story, what's there. And then all of that kind of shifted. And I'm like, but people still want recipes, because I quite frankly, still need the candy in the van to give out to get them in. And I didn't like cooking. So then I built a team, my wife is now the CEO of caveman. And I realized that my true passion is helping people. And I want to help a billion people. And I know that it's a selfish thing to do it by myself. So 
two years ago, I decided that I wanted to help other people help more people. And so now I help companies ethically scale. I became a digital marketing consultant. And since then, I now do digital marketing strategy and consulting for most of the biggest companies you see in the world. But I'm the Wizard of Oz that stays behind. And it's like the Batman and Bruce Wayne. So civilized caveman's Bruce Wayne. And then what you don't see at night is that 99% of my time, I have worked with men's health, women's health, Titleist, TaylorMade, Onnit, Reebok, men's health, Otto's Cassava, Flower, Drink Maple, Enso Rings, Masting Kip, and the list goes on and on and on. So how did that start? Like... Did somebody reach out to you or you just... No. (laughs) You did the phone call again, like, hey, here's what's up. (laughs) Well, actually, here's what happened. I was in a mastermind with a lot of peers of mine, Tucker Max, Darren and Danielle Yatoni, Sean Stevenson, Jim Quick, Michael Fishman, Cynthia Pasquale. We were all in a room together, Drew Canoli, and we were all working together. And I was about two weeks away from bankruptcy. And I don't say that lightly. Like We were like basically out of money and I was massively upset and incongruent, didn't want to cook. And I was there under the auspice of Civilized Caveman and us working together and like everybody helping each other. And during the whole mastermind, somebody asked a question about marketing and somebody answered it. And I was like, that's a stupid answer. (laughs) And they were like, excuse me. And then Tucker was like, and if you know Tucker Max, he's really blunt and direct. Tucker's like, I agree with him. It is stupid. George, why don't you tell them? And like Tucker and I just met. And so I ended up speaking for about five minutes and they were like, we've never heard that before. Would you mind sharing more? And I was like, sure. So I stood up in the room and I talked about it for about an hour on marketing and how I did it and how I built a million followers without ever spending a dollar and got 5 million website views a month and all this other stuff. And their minds were like blown. And so we took a break and then Tucker's like, dude, are you a consultant? Do you teach this? I'm like, no, what's consulting? (laughs) And he's like, it's when people pay you money to talk. And I'm like, well, I love talking. I'm like kind of addicted to hearing myself talk. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, you need to be a consultant. I'm like, what do I charge? And he's like, just make it up. And I was like, okay. So we went back in the room. There were 22 people in the room. And then Tucker's like, and just so everybody knows, I talked to George. He can help all of you do this in your business. He's a consultant. And of the 22 people in the room, 20 of them hired me. Oh my word. And that's it. It took off. And it changed my business and my life. And I'm a speakeasy consultant because I add more value than I could ever take. And I believe in helping people have a bigger impact, not helping people add another comma to their bottom line. So it sounds super fulfilling, actually. So I'm very selective on who I work with. Yeah, I mean, I have a six-month waiting list. I've been doing it for two years and I've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world. And I can say now without saying the name of the company that I am responsible we're taking somebody to a valuation of over a billion dollars. Dang. And it feels really good to not have anybody know that it was me. And it keeps me humble and it keeps my ego down. And it allows me to serve in the capacity that I want to serve, which gives me the container to do the work that I want to do, which doesn't feed my ego, which keeps me disconnected from the work I need to do. So I basically have set up a life to where there's no way I can be the face of it and everybody gets to win, including myself. And so that's what I do now. (laughs) This is okay. This is incredible. All right. I'm going to go in and ask you some extra questions. I'm an open book. So anything you like, I know that that was a lot and I will gladly dive into share, say anything. And for anybody listening, I don't say this lightly in my marketing world. One of the things I teach people and I teach companies is that Our job is to make sure that everybody feels like they matter, whether they give us their credit card or not. And so I will tell you that if you're at this point in the interview, 35 minutes in, and I opened any loops for you, or you have any questions, or you want to talk to me about eating disorders or sexual abuse or anything, and you want a safe, neutral ear, 
DM me on Instagram at Civilized Caveman because I'm the only one that reads them and I will respond to every single one of them and I don't care how many I get and how long it takes, but I will respond to every one of them. Okay, you heard it, listeners. Direct contact, George himself, I love it. I want to ask you, this is completely random actually and fun. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you a random fun question because my husband was reading about you and he was like, can you just ask him a couple things for me? Yeah, like let's go. <laughs> okay, so you talk about your cast iron skillet, which we're all about in our house as well. And then we were reading something about how you freeze the steaks. Talk us through the situation and how does this work? Like a perfect steak. It's so easy. Okay. I think Tim had done this once. I'd done it once. Tim had done it once and I'd seen another. I think Tim wrote about it in his book for our chef or something. And a lot of us have modified it, but this is the secret. So the secret to it, and this is from a guy who hates to cook, by the way. The (laughs) The secret to a good sear on a steak is having it be as dry as possible, right? Right. Everybody knows that? Where's the driest place in your house? Oh, it's the freezer. It's the freezer. So you pull your steak out, New York's ribeyes. Ribeyes are my favorite. Bone-in ribeyes are even better because you get the juice, you get the heat, the residual, the fat, all that stuff. Bone-in ribeye or ribeye on the counter for like an hour. Bring it to room temperature. Pat it dry with paper towels add some sea salt and throw it in the freezer for 30 minutes. The sea salt will help pull out a little bit more moisture. Pull it out, pat it dry as dry as you can. Put your cast iron skillet on your stove on high and preheat your oven to 250 degrees. Take the steak. I sear mine in bacon fat or duck fat or anything that is not going to oxidize and poison you. Like don't use olive oil or I will kick you in the shins. High heat oil, something stable. Get as hot as you can. Put your steaks in and sear them, like really, really good sear. Give it 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and do every single side. And I even like to do the edges. Then take the steaks out of the pan and turn the heat off. And any flavor you like, put in the bottom of the pan. So what I normally do is I add a massive bed of rosemary, thyme, and some apples. And I remove the steaks and elevate them above the pan. So then I put the steaks on the bed of herbs. And I take the whole pan and I put it in the oven until the steak reaches 130 degrees. Awesome. I mean, I, I'm just drooling and I already had dinner. This is an evening interview. Every time. Every time. Works every single time. Okay. I'm all about it. The freezer. Okay. I've done it with pork chops. I've done it with steaks. I do it every time. It, I think it's a reverse sear in the reverse order. Right. Because <laughs> I think a reverse sear is in the oven, then in the pan. I do it in the pan and then into the oven. And then I use that space in the pan to infuse whatever flavors I want. So if it's not rosemary, it could be thyme, could be vegetables, could be potatoes, could be anything that you want. You just want to keep the steak off the pan so one side doesn't unevenly cook and the heat from the pan isn't searing it anymore, but it's up and you're just baking it in that pan. Right, exactly. Okay, awesome. Now also, talk to me about your Traeger grill smoker. Is it as awesome as everybody says? My brother has one. He won't stop talking about it. <laughs> so um, it's like, do I need one? Pretty good. And if you want me to introduce you to Traeger, I gladly will. All right. <laughs> I love it. So smoking is definitely like an art form. It's a very slow process because, you know, just to even make certain things like pulled pork takes like 12, 14, 16 hours, but it's automatic. Like it's literally like set it and forget it. And there is nothing like having like homemade ribs. Like, oh, I think I have this recipe on my website. See, I don't like cooking, but I like eating. I just would rather pay somebody to cook it for me. 
because that's a better use of my time. Well, my co-host Tedra is always asking me like, well, I don't understand how you're so motivated to cook all the time. And I tell her it's because I'm so motivated to eat good food all the time. <laughs> so to me, it's worth it to eat it, to cook you're it. You're just a better person than me. <laughs> I've actually been fasting for the last three and a half days. So I did a, a bone broth cleanse where I did nothing but bone broth every day for three and a half days and I ended. Oh, wow. Yeah, but that's besides the point. But I do that on the road sometimes because I don't want to cook. Is it like intermittent fasting we're talking about? I do intermittent fasting all the time, but I did a, an extended. I want to do a four-day water fast, but I wanted to test myself. So I did it with bone broth first. So I would get about 200 calories a day and have some flavored liquid. And then I realized how easy it was. So about two days in, I just stopped having bone broth and did just water for the last two days. But yeah, so Traegers are amazing, but they have to be something like if you enjoy grilling, keep your grill because they're completely different. Now you can put a Traeger on high and you can get about 450 degrees and you can infuse that smoke flavor, but it's very different than a grill. But like ribs, life-changing. I have this recipe on my website for like perfect smoked ribs, like a blackberry barbecue sauce or something. And like use the three, two, one method. You do, you use yellow mustard for your meat. I call it meat glue because when you put yellow mustard on meat, it like basically glues the seasonings to the meat, but it doesn't taste like yellow mustard it basically cooks off. And so you end up with these perfectly seasoned things. So I rub my ribs with yellow mustard and I put my caveman rub on it, which is on my website under the pulled pork recipe and something else and rub it. And they go the three, two, one method. So you put it on smoke, like 225 degrees. You do three hours of it just on the smoke. You never touch them. You pull them off, you wrap them in tin foil. And then I add grass fed butter and a little bit of apple juice into the foil. And then they spend two hours in the foil, basically like steaming with butter mm. and apple juice. Go on. <laughs> that, that's the two. Then you take them off, you unwrap them. You put like whatever sauce you want on your barbecue sauce or whatever, your hot sauce or whatever. And then you put those back on the smoke for an hour and they will change your life. Okay. So talking about all this food. I would say like, yes, like the things that you can do, like a pulled pork, yes, it'll take 12 hours, but it will be like the most life-changing pulled pork ever. Like I've gotten up at 1 a.m. to do a brisket for 18 hours because I wanted to eat it so bad for dinner. I don't really consider that cooking because all I'm doing is throwing a massive hunk of meat on a smoker and turning it on. So I'll do that all day. It's really, really amazing. And you can do things a little bit differently. Like you can still use wood planks like you would on your grill, but you can do them on top of your smoker. If you get the right one, you can actually cold smoke your own salmon, which is pretty cool. People love that. Like I have friends that fresh catch salmon and I cold smoke it for them. You can do chicken wings, but chicken wings don't cook that well on smokers because their skin gets really tough. So what I do is before I cook my wings, whether I fry them in the house or I put them in the oven, is I put them on the lowest setting of smoke for 30 minutes and I basically allow the skin and the chicken to absorb all of that smoke flavor, whether it's applewood or cherry or whatever one I'm using. And then you cook them how you normally would and people are like, why are your wings so good? They taste so smoky and you cooked them in the oven. I'm like, haha, that's my secret. <laughs> Genius. But not really because I just told you. Amazing. So it kind of reminds me of like, when I got my Instapot last year for Christmas, it's just sort of a game changer because it's just automatic and no longer do I have to plan the 12 hours on the slow cooker. It's just done in under an hour practically every time. That's it. I mean, an Instapots are like a life-changing device. They really are. Preach it. Like just alone, hard-boiled eggs in the Instapot are life-changing. Oh, Wait a second. I haven't done that. What? Well, I'm all about the soft boiled. So I've got like, I've got the six minute egg down like in the morning. 
I mean, if you do softball, that's fine too. But like, I love, like, I wasn't joking. Like, I'm addicted to Sir Kensington's avocado oil mayonnaise. Okay. <laughs> to the point where like Allison keeps me stocked. Like, she thinks there's like wrong with me. I need like mayonnaise anonymous. <laughs> I'm pretty bad about mayonnaise too. My husband's like, really? Seriously? Every meal? <laughs> Everything. Egg, fries, burgers, pizza. <laughs> Like literally everything. My wife is like, are you okay? And then my favorite thing is getting Siete's new fiery chips. Oh, you're preaching to the choir. I'm obsessed with Siete. <laughs> Siete into mayo. And only, and the only mayo I like is Sir Kensington's avocado oil mayo. It is the only one that does the justice that hits the spot. Where do you get that? Like Whole Foods or? Oh yeah, Whole Foods. They have big ones at Costco. Oh, sweet. Okay. Sir Kensington's like the OG's condiment company they've been in business for like 11 years like before it was even a thing they were still doing healthy condiments so i love them for that i use it on everything and i feel like mayonnaise is the most underutilized and underappreciated condiment on the planet which originated as a salad dressing and then people put it into the condiment category but i was like you need to bring it back as a salad dressing because you can eat it on everything and i will say amsterdam yes (laughs) they serve mayonnaise with french fries at every single meal and i was like you guys are my people George, listen to me. I grew up in Quebec, Canada. God, so good. Same. It's like, it's so good. I can't, I cannot have fries without mayonnaise. It's just not, it's not good. Yeah, I don't think fries should exist without mayonnaise, quite That's frankly. That's right. Any potato form, actually. Yeah. No, I, mashed potatoes too, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you want to make good mashed cauliflower and have everybody figure out why it tastes so good, here's the secret. Steam your cauliflower, and this is what everybody does. They go all rookie on it, right? They steam it in water. No, steam it in bone broth. Oh, hello. Yes. Broth, something, stock, add flavor. Like, I never liked to cook, right? I taught myself how to cook to heal something, and then I literally only wrote a cookbook because of my ego. So, like, it's not like I wanted to be this, like, culinary trained chef. I just wanted to have efficiencies and have food taste good. But, like, my favorite recipe forever when I wasn't doing potatoes, when the paleo police said they were bad and wrong, was cauliflower. So I would steam the cauliflower in a broth, like a chicken broth, and then I would put it in my blend tech. And then I would literally add the juice of two limes, about a half a stick of Kerrygold butter with an entire handful of cilantro. And then I would add a couple tablespoons of mayonnaise and then I would literally blend it and it's life-changing. No way. Is this in the cookbook? No, I don't even, I never published it. I felt like it was too simple to put on my way. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Steam cauliflower, put in your blender, add some lime juice, add some salt, add some cilantro, and add some mayonnaise and hit blend. Like, done. Yum. Okay, Tedra, I don't think Tedra likes mayonnaise, so she's probably over there <laughs> getting no, grossed Tedra, out. I, I still like you, but we'll work. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not my thing, but I mean, I can appreciate it. I do have it in things. I mean, I know it's like blended into things that I do eat, but. And we're good there. We're good. Yeah, I mean, I could handle a couple tablespoons in a cauliflower mash for sure. I can handle a couple tablespoons in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do some follow-up questions with you based on this. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Okay, one thing I want to know is where are you based out of? Where do you live? I live in Temecula, California, so like about an hour north of San Diego. So I'm listening to the story, and if I wasn't talking to you in such an authentic way, it's unbelievable, like unbelievable, like what you've been through. So one thing I wanted to know is, have you always been this open? Like, what was that change and when did that happen? Like, I'm sure like for a long time you carried it in, held it in. When my wife left me for the second time before we were married and said like, I never want to see you again. Don't ever speak to me. You're one of the worst human beings on the planet. And then I went and did personal development work. And they're like, you leave trails of dead bodies behind you. People don't feel like they matter, blah, 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 blah. 
I started to become aware that when my story ran me, I hurt other people. And my intention has never been to hurt people. And when I came out to the world about my bulimia, it created possibility for me that I'd never known existed. I got 5,000 emails in like three days after that podcast and post. It took me like four months to respond to every one of them. That was the moment where I started to realize that I felt the freest, I felt the most alive, and I felt the clearest, even in the deepest states of depression, anxiety, and everything when I just owned my truth. And I was willing to stand in it whether anybody else liked it or not. And it was a very big pivotal moment for me. And then I basically started practicing radical honesty, which is not always the most popular opinion, but you'll never wonder how I feel. How long ago was this? Four or five years ago. So you were already dating your now wife at the time. Oh, yeah, 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 sure was. Well, I guess it worked. I mean, she married you. So she believed in your new honesty. Well, the truth is, is that like marriages work and it's work every day. And it's yeah. not pretty to have two very battered pasts together that feed each other. And like, that's why marriage is work. It's like, you have to be willing to be committed to something greater than yourself every day. And I mean, today was actually a rough day. Like we had a three hour therapy session that was like rough and I leave town tonight. And I say that because one of the things that really bothers me about the internet is that how easy people make it to believe that everything is rainbows and unicorns. And quite frankly, no good life happens in rainbows. Like life happens in the messy details. Those are the memories. That's the growth. Those are the things that we remember. That's where relationships are formed. That's where depth happens. And that's where healing occurs. And so I choose to spend my time in the mud puddles. I mean, how would you define like your current struggle, like today? Like obviously you're running a successful business now. You're married. I mean, you've turned the corner. Perception isn't reality. I have two businesses and I'm really, really good at what I do. And my consulting business is massively successful. And Caveman is successful now, but it took my wife being the CEO. It was losing 70 grand a quarter for about a year and a half, which I did not have. It was painful. That's the thing is like people project it to be there. So like, I'm going to be real with everybody. And I talked about this earlier today. There is not one day in the last three years that I can remember that I haven't cried. And I am depressed every single day. I wake up with no purpose, struggling, sad, crying, angry, anxious every day. And I allow myself 60 seconds to suffer. And I set a timer and I suffer for 60 seconds and I literally feed my own crap. And then the timer goes off. I have a rule that I have to go do something for somebody else, whether it's my wife, my kids, someone on the internet or anything. And I literally hundreds of times a day, allow myself into some crap for a minute. I put a container on it and then I choose to get out of it for the betterment of humanity and the betterment of this world and what I choose to do with it. But I want to say that because I feel like it's really easy to look at things and be like, oh, it's so clean. It's so happy. It's so pretty. It's so amazing. And I'm like, it's real. And like, this is real. People struggle. People suffer. People are depressed. Most people don't find paleo or massive restricted ways of eatings out of a place of happiness. Like, can we be honest about that, please? You're not like, oh, let me do a whole 30 to lose 20 pounds because I love how I look. Or let me go paleo and restrict everything in my life because I love how I feel. We don't. It's most of the time out of a place of either a physical health ailment or an emotional health ailment. And that's okay. But when you own that, it changes what happens. It changes the way that you create results. It changes the way that you live your life. And so yes, on paper, or if you look at the internet, civilized cavemen look successful. And I will tell you that like maybe in the last four weeks, 
it shifted after a year of actually getting back on track because I had to do more work and we had to do more work for me to even be able to show up and run Caveman and be that pillar and beacon that gave people space and hope. And so I'm just not one of those guys that like, hey, here's my highlight reel. Like, yes, I have highlights. And for every one of those highlights, I have just as many situations that aren't ideal, but I don't even like to call them struggles because they're not. They're just situations and I just choose how to show up into them. But I just wanted to be clear on that because I know there's people that listen to these and the things that tag me about podcasts is, you know, we bring successful people on to basically stroke their own damn egos some more. And like, quite frankly, I don't give a crap about how many copies of your book you sold or what's in it, knowing the fact that you didn't even write the damn thing and you paid somebody else to it because that doesn't help anybody. We can give people hope all day, but if you can educate them, empower them, and inspire them, if you can give them permission and safety and accountability, they change their life. That's what I'm committed to. So, sorry, that was like a mini rant. No, well, one thing I'm really taking away from, I mean, there's a lot to take away from that, but it's like you have put in place the practice every day. Like, you give yourself the 60 seconds or a couple minutes. It's like a practice. You practice it every day to like move on and have a better day or a better moment or better time with your kids or a meal that works, like all the little details. I mean, it it takes practice. That's the thing, right? Because life isn't a destination. And if you think it is, you're going to be miserable because you're never going to hit a place because it's never going to be enough. That's just human nature. The destination is the journey. And the journey is what you're in every day. And so you just design your journey to be supportive of you, supportive of your goals and supportive of where you're going. Now, I love my life. I love my life, but I have actual physical changes in my body that have happened due to trauma, PTSD, traumatic brain injury. Like I've witnessed three suicides, like witnessed. I saw one person shoot themselves in the face. I saw one guy hang himself and I found him after. And I saw one overdose on drugs without me knowing and then pass away and we couldn't revive him. Like I've witnessed that stuff. That physically changes how you operate from a neurological perspective. Doesn't mean I don't love my life any less, but I just acknowledge that that's how I feel every day. And in spite of my feelings, I'm committed to something greater. Commitment isn't feelings. And so I show up anyways and create the results that I want to have in this world. But I still have my down days. I still have my struggles. I still think about all of it. I still live in guilt, flame, fault, and shame cycles. I still have all of these things, but they're not me. They're just circumstances. And then I use them and I continually do work and build the tools and practice to be able to rise above them. The first question is always give me one or two great tips to share with the listeners. You've sort of given us like a ton of tips, but give me like one more tip. Let's get one more tip. Can I give you a tangible takeaway? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because everybody asks me like, how do you do this? Like, how do you make that mindset shift, right? Like it comes up all the time. So I actually put it into five A's that are really easy to remember for me. And I do everything for me and then I just happen to share it. So the five A's are awareness, acceptance, action, accountability, attitude for gratitude. So awareness is like understanding there's something that's not ideal. Like I'm depressed or I'm unhappy or I don't think I'm good enough or whatever. Like as soon as you are aware of something, then you have the capacity to recognize it and make a change. And that's where acceptance comes in. If you try to change something without accepting it, you're going to end up repeating the same pattern. Now, acceptance doesn't mean that you're okay with how it is. It means that you accept where you are so you have a starting line to move forward. So awareness, acceptance, and then action. Once you accept where you are, you commit to an action in the opposite direction, like full 180. So like if I'm aware I'm bulimic and I accept the fact that right now I want to go binge because I'm stressed, I'm afraid that my life is falling to pieces, I 
am going to commit to walking out the door and going for a 30 minute walk without opening the refrigerator. That is the action. Then accountability is the second I make the decision, I take any back doors away from myself because I text my wife, I post on social media, I call my friend, and I let somebody know outside of myself what I'm doing so I can be accountable. And then once I complete it, I then have an attitude of gratitude where I reward myself and acknowledge myself for doing it and choosing the right action, the right experience, and developing a new neural pathway or memory or neuron that fires when it says, hey, when you binge eat or you feel like binge eating, if you go for a walk, you feel better, it supports your goals. And so those are the five A's that I use. Okay, so if I called you at 9 a.m. on any given day, what are you most likely doing? Drinking a decaf coffee while standing in front of a whiteboard, speaking to a client in some other country or state than the one I live in. What is something people would be surprised to know about you? I've done over 1,500 podcast interviews. That is the first time I have not had an answer on the tip of my tongue. (laughs) All right. That's something they don't know about me. But I'm going to pin that as you ask me the next one. And I feel like I got something that, that they don't know that I will give to you by the time you're done. How do you like to decompress? For me, I take ice baths. I take an ice bath every chance I get. So I built in, I have an infrared sauna in my garage and I have an ice bath next to it that's 34 degrees. And it is the only thing that I have in my life physically that can force me into meditation because all I can focus on is breathing. And so I love the discomfort that comes with it and it trains me on how to live my life. Okay, so who do you love to follow on Instagram? That is an amazing question. Instagram is my preferred platform. So there's a couple that pop off the top of my head. In our world, like the health world, Danielle Walker, amazing friend, amazing inspiration. She is a walking authenticity machine, which obviously you can tell like that resonates with me. And so I absolutely love her. I love her family. I love her husband, Ryan. I love her kids. They're just all amazing. So I love following her because it keeps me feeling connected even like when we don't see each other that often. Another one is I have a really, really good friend. Her name is Rachel Brooks Smith. She's an actress. She was in Glee. She's in a ton of Bring It Ons and a ton of different things. Her Instagram is Smith, And she has a company that she named and it's called Disruptive Movement. And she like lives this positive disruption. So she teaches a lot of the things that really resonate with me. And she does it in a different manner that gives you like actionable tools. And her favorite thing to do is dance. And quite frankly, I can't dance and I don't like dancing, but it makes me happy like seeing other people dance all happily. So she's great. And then one of my really good friends, Steve Weatherford, his Instagram is Weatherford5. He was the punter for the Giants when they beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And he retired after 10 years. He was the most jacked punter in the NFL. But he is a dad first. He has five kids. He has an amazing wife. They have an amazing, beautiful family. And he is one of the most down-to-earth, humble, caring, giving individuals that I've ever met. And he decided when he retired from the NFL that he was going to use his social media to empower people to live their best life through fitness, through nutrition, through motivation. And he is on Instagram more than anyone I've ever seen in my life. Like I'm talking like a hundred stories a day. Oh, wow. Constantly there answering questions, guiding people. He also looks like he was chiseled from a statue in Greek mythology. <laughs> so I like him for that reason because he motivates me and I love him and he's a really good friend of mine. So on Instagram, like those are the ones that I kind of consume more than anybody. You know, I got a couple of my friends like Lewis Howes, Aubrey Marcus. He's a really good friend and client of mine. Sean Stevenson, Drew Manning from Fit to Fat to Fit, stuff like that. But those are the ones that I look for. And then 
on YouTube because you asked me earlier, what's one thing that people might be surprised to know about me? Yeah. Well, in my rule of only consuming 30 minutes of like content a week, which isn't marketing books, which isn't business books, I am addicted to this one show on YouTube and it comes out every Thursday and I watch it every single time. It's called Hot Ones. His name's Sean. It's like Complex Magazine. And he interviews celebrities and they eat 10 chicken wings and they go from basically not hot to three and a half million Scovilles. And you have to eat the wing and they ask you a question after each wing. And the Kevin Hart episode's hilarious. Bobby Lee like basically pooped his pants. Oh my gosh, that's genius. I have to watch that. That is so They get to the point where they're like almost like literally high from the wings and they can't concentrate. They can't answer the questions. <laughs> and it makes my heart happy and I laugh. And so then I bought every hot sauce on the show and my daughter and I, she's 13, her and I have eaten every single hot sauce on that show, including the one that's 4 million Scovilles, which is the hottest one in the world. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I'm going to check that out. Those are like what I consume and like where I find my little decompression happiness. Okay, so what's a favorite app of yours? The favorite app that I have for social media is Instagram. Voxer for how I communicate with all of my friends and like my students and clients. And then for anything fun, you know what the other one I use all the time is All Trails. I don't really work out anymore but I love like going outside and walking and it keeps me really grounded. So I use all trails to basically find everywhere I can walk around me and document it. And you can thank my friend Melissa from Whole30 for telling me about it because she like hikes like 18 times a day to a point where it like scares me how much she goes. But I use that app probably more than anything. And then the other app I have is the power button on the side to where I turn my phone off so I don't consume apps and I'm actually present. Okay, so describe your perfect day. Okay, so my perfect day, I actually wrote an article about this this morning and recorded a video. So my perfect day is me waking up between like 5.30 and 6 with no alarm, full of energy, coming downstairs, and within the first five minutes, drinking a crap ton of water and writing down my intention for the day. And then I go in my garage and I get in the ice bath for a minimum of three minutes. And if you ever thought you needed coffee, you're wrong. You just need an ice bath. <laughs> Then I get out of the ice bath and then I execute the first thing on my list, like whatever the hardest thing is, whatever that frog is, I do that before I even look at my phone or consume anything because I get to be in charge of my day, not have my day be in charge of me. And so I utilize that. And then after that, normally my son wakes up around 6.30, 6.45. And when I'm home, I love getting him out of bed, giving him his raw milk in the morning and laughing with him. And then my wife gets up, my daughter gets up. None of us really eat breakfast, actually. I think we all kind of intermittent fast, just the baby does. Then we take my daughter to school. I go get a decaf Americano because I've been caffeine-free for six months. And then I dive into work. And work is me in my office on video calls, recording content, helping people, helping companies. And then lunch, I love to have lunch with my wife. And then normally in the afternoon, I love to go for a walk outside, barefoot, grounded, or hiking barefoot, or out doing something in movement get some more work done, eat dinner with my family. My family is currently addicted to Stranger Things, but I already watched that show a long time ago. So I just sit there and let them laugh and figure that out. And then, you know, we eat dinner, we put the baby to bed. And then I actually love to come back into my office at night. I am my most productive and clear at night, like post 9 p.m. And so I come in, put my blue light blockers on, put my headphones on, and I just like 
get really clear on like what I'm doing, get some high quality work done. And then the last thing I do before I go to bed is I literally eliminate any excuses or backdoors I would have for the next day. And so I set myself up for the next morning. So like if I need to drink, you know, 24 ounces of water when I wake up, because that's my routine, I put the glass of water next to my bed. If I need to make sure that I bring something in my car with me when I go to the airport tonight, actually, I'm leaving in a couple minutes to go to the airport tonight. I set it out the night before. So I'm never like scrambling around or doing anything. And so my ideal day is really, really simple. Like I just like being around people. I like talking. I like being connected. I like spending time with my family. And I really, really love what I do. And it becomes a massive part of my day. Do you have any Netflix addictions that you want to talk about? You know, I am addicted to Netflix documentaries. And so one of the things that I do, I volunteer at least once a month with a company called The Five Ventures. And I go into prison and I coach inmates on how to become entrepreneurs and business owners. And I don't even like calling them inmates, but that's how people refer to them. They're just amazing human beings. And I feel like as a society, we lock people up and throw away the key. And my life has dramatically changed by going into prisons and maximum security prisons and spending time with them, helping them either change their life, change their world or do what they need to and and believe in multiple chances. And there is a Netflix documentary. And I'm looking at the name of it right now because I watched it a couple of weeks ago and it just really kind of changed. I'd already volunteered, but there's one that's called The Survivor's Guide to Prison on Netflix. And there's another one that's called The 13th. And if anybody's really interesting, Netflix aside, there's also one prison in this country that has a live podcast done from inmates with inside the prison. I've heard of this. What is the name of it? It's called Ear Hustle. Absolutely mind-blowing. And I will tell you that I kind of stopped consuming content that was like not real. And I feel like in order to be congruent with what I do and what I teach, and like I want to stand for these people, I want to help a billion people, I want to be the best version of myself. I like consuming and kind of immersing myself in what's there. And I will tell you that last week I was at a prison and there were 53 amazing human beings there. Some of them were in for murder. Some of them were in for drugs, some of them for a lot of things. And some of them have been locked up since they were six years old, never had a visitor. They were locked up because they stole toys because their parents told them they didn't deserve them. So were they just moved straight from like juvenile to adult system or something? So in juvie, and then in juvie got recruited to a gang, then the gang violence started. And and then once you're in the system, like there's no such thing as fair trials once you're already in prison. There's men in there that I met that have been on life sentences and then literally had their conviction overturned after 42 years because they found out that it was all a myth and they spent 42 years of their life behind bars. And so there's a lot of a lot of stuff there and I just think it's a very, very important thing to kind of like think through. And so when I go on Netflix, I watch the documentaries on like the prisons. I watch the documentaries on the Westboro Baptist Church because my friend Megan Phelps Roper is the one who left the church. Things like that to kind of just really be connected to like what's going on in this world and like where can we have the biggest impact and how can we make the biggest difference and not pretending that everything's okay. So that's kind of my, it's my airplane addiction on Netflix. Who would you love to have a cup of coffee with? Well, the first thought that popped into my head was Winston Churchill. So I would say I would love to have a cup of coffee with Winston Churchill, if that was possible. And then alive, I will say anybody that I've ever wanted to have a cup of coffee with, I have. (laughs) Yeah, you've got a pretty great list of friends going. (laughs) I've been paying attention. It's pretty nice. Actually, you know what? 
the people that I prefer to have a cup of coffee with more than anyone are the people that nobody else wants to have coffee with. Like I travel all the time, right? Like I've flown 155 times in the last 12 months. Like I'm always in a different city and I walk through Chicago, I walk through Boston, New York. And like, I remember I was in Chicago and I walked by and someone asked me for money, a homeless person. I said, I can't give you money, but I would love to sit down with you and buy you breakfast. And you learn a lot about yourself when you listen to other people. Just some of the people I've met doing that. I was in New York City and I walked by a guy that was asking for money and he had a USMC, you know, banner on. And so I stopped and I'm talking to him for 45 minutes. And after 45 minutes, he felt safe enough to tell me that he was never in the Marine Corps and he did it because it got people to give him more money. It was the only way that he knew how to eat and things like that. Like, it's just, I don't it's know. Like real life stories. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just like, that's where life happens, right? Like that's where you learn the most about what you want to do, who you want to be, where you want to go and like what impact you can have. So you travel all the time. Like what's a favorite city that you love visiting and hate leaving? Scotland. I was in Edinburgh, Scotland. I would say out of anywhere I've ever been, and I've been everywhere, Edinburgh, Scotland, like I would live there in a heartbeat. It was the people were amazing. The country is amazing. It was gorgeous. The weather was perfect. I just felt, I'm Scottish, but I felt at home and grounded and both in nature and connected at the same time. And just, I don't know, it's like, it was like 15 years behind the US. And it was really, really nice with like how slow it was. And so that would be overseas, like my favorite one. And then I would say in the US, Boulder, we've been considering moving there. So Boulder, Colorado. What song do you currently have on repeat? Roar by Katy Perry. So if you could have one last meal, what meal would you choose? Chocolate chip pancakes. What's the best gift you've ever received? My son. And what's the best gift you've ever given? My son. What's the last thing you Googled? Prison documentaries, Netflix. One last question we have for you. So what's the greatest life advice you've ever received? The greatest life advice that I've ever received is my value is not predicated on somebody else's execution. Okay, George, I don't even know how to wrap this show up because I feel like I could talk to you for another three or four hours. I know you have got a flight to catch, but really we just can't thank you for coming on and giving some of your time and sharing some of your story with us. It's packed. I really could unpack it for another hour or two for real. Well, I've been known to be repeat guests on podcasts. So if you ever want me back for a specific topic or anything, I would probably love that. More than anything, I just want to thank both of you. You're the ones that hold and create the space for me to be my authentic self and allow me to share my story and build this. So more than anything, thank you for reaching out and asking me to be here and allowing me to be here and to do this. Like It truly is my honor. All right. Thank you, George. Hopefully we'll talk again. Instead of hopefully, can we just make that a plan? Let's make it a date. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we'll reach out to you tomorrow then. (laughs) Well, I already emailed both of you. I saw that. Hope doesn't exist, but action does. And I think that's a good takeaway. So, Tedra, time for some host to host, but like my head's spinning right now. What? (laughs) Right? I mean, this guy's amazing. He's been through so much suffering that I think most of the listeners, most of us will just never know in our lives. But he's so passionate about using it to help others. I mean, just simply put, he just, there's like no wasted breath. Everything out of his mouth is useful and profound. Well, I think that when you go through sort of what his story in life is, there's two ways it's going to go down. It's going to literally kill you or you're going to somehow use it as steps and 
you know, to climb up out of it and, and survive, you know, that's what he's chosen to do. Yeah, I agree. And I like how he says, like, this is not, it's not like it's over. Like, I'm still dealing with things. I still get up and he makes practices in his life to, you know, make sure he keeps himself on the positive path. Actually, when we got off the phone with him and he talked another like 10 minutes to us, not off the phone, but when we were done with the podcast recording, you know, we talked another 10, 15 minutes off the air about things. And, you know, this is like my own little counseling session personally for my life. And yeah, I mean, I took a walk afterwards and just really like thought about it all. So yeah. And even though he was giving advice to you specifically, <laughs> I still couldn't walk away without being affected. I thought, gosh, this applies to my life too. I mean, good stuff. Hope you guys all enjoy it. George, you're a special guy. Special guy. We want to thank you for listening today. And if you like the show, we'd love for you to head over to iTunes and give us a positive review. They really help other people find the show. You can find us at wegettoknow.com where you can sign up for our newsletter and on social media at We Get to Know. Head over to Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and get your opinions on guests and show ideas. Our music is provided by the talented Blake Atwell of Studio 1916 in Austin, Texas. Until next time, take care as we continue to get to know all of our favorite influencers and bloggers. Bloggers.